Well, thank you, Dr. Pettit, and thank you for the gracious invitation to be here. I, I know probably a few thousand preachers that would be better fit for this particular role, but I am humbled to be here. I'm so thankful. Uh, my wife is in here somewhere. Uh, June 5th, we will have been married 108 years. Fifty-four years each, and uh, and thank the Lord for a godly woman who directed me to God thinking. After I surrendered my heart to the Lord and surrendered my heart to ministry, because all my thinking was fear thinking. She was the secretary for Dr. Bob Harrison here in the PR department. Uh, I was a logger. And uh, thank God for a a wife who would hold out a promise box when I would dumb talk, she call it. I would say something of fear. She said, that's dumb talk. What does God say? And she would hold out the promise box. So I'm not going to have my wife stand, but I, I do want to recognize her as so crucial in, in our life. And then the relationship that we've had here for so many years, uh, so appreciate the times that we get with uh, Dr. Bob Third and, and his wife, the opportunities that our paths have to cross, and then the times of fellowship here. You're, you're blessed uh, to be in this place. I'd like us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I mean, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8. And I was greatly blessed by hearing the prayer that was being put into this meeting. Because I am convinced that prayer is that which lays that groundwork for the Spirit of God to work and to change the hearts of the prayers and to change the heart of those for whom they pray. And uh, to see so many clustering in prayer after the service last night, to me, was a thrill. I remember I was invited to speak to a winter camp, and when you book something a year or two ahead, it looks simple when, you, when it's two years from now. And then when it comes, you think, what was I thinking? And I had a Friday night, Saturday retreat at a camp in northern lower Michigan. It wasn't Camp Kobiak. It was another smaller camp outside of Midland, Michigan. And I'm driving in a snowstorm getting up there. I'm tired. I'm totally worn out. And I say, God, please don't let my attitude affect what you want to do this weekend with these young people. I was praying for an attitude adjustment. I got there, they had me staying in a trailer that was like an old turtle. Do you remember the old trailers that looked like the turtle with the head and the tail cut off? A round thing, no heat. I kept my clothes on and added some layers, put what we called a youper chook on my head so I wouldn't freeze my head while I was sleeping. I'm saying, God, how did I get into this? I got up to preach Friday night. And it hit my mind, someone has been praying. 
because there was such a freedom and such a result in the life of the heart of those young people. Invitation given, there was a response. In fact, Chad Philippiak, one we've been connected. In fact, we saw him last week. Got saved that night as a senior in, in high school. And more happened the next day. And then I left, and then the youth pastor called me. He said, uh, on Monday, he said, the revival is still going on. He said, the pastor recognized that God was doing a unique work, and he turned the morning service over to the young people. And this was not a kind of a church that would go willy-nilly. This was a very highly organized church. Sunday night again, more saved in the morning service. Sunday night again, more saved in the evening service. The work of the young people. And the youth pastor called me and said, Brother Les, that revival is still going on. I said, don't blame me. Who has been praying? I asked him. He said, you know, when you agreed to come, we started prayer meetings every week for that Friday night and that Saturday. I said, I knew it. It was so clear that God was, was doing that work. Well, I'm look at Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm going to call it the analogy of a revival or how do you describe the elements of a revival. And I want to point out three elements that I think are born out in this text. But when you look at revival, what actually is Revival. I have files of notes. I have files of illustrations. I have files of personal illustrations from the years that we traveled. We had the privilege of traveling for many years with Life Action Revival Ministries. We lived in an airstream on the road for a number of years and saw tremendous works of God during that time. And I'm trying to think, how do I distill what's really on my heart uh, during this time of Bible conference? How do, how do I communicate everything that's going on in my mind and distill it into some drops that would make sense? And basically, after all of the years and all of the observations and all of the experience, I realized revival is not excitement. Revival is exchange. Revival is sanctification process ongoing. As I simply distill how I would define revival, revival is an ongoing sanctification process that demands obedience. Simply defined, revival is obedience. Now, excitement can come as a result of a revived heart. But we are not to seek excitement. You can create an atmosphere. You can get everything revved up and create an atmosphere but when it's all over with, there is really no change. No exchanges have taken place. And tomorrow night, I plan to deal with what are some of those exchanges that happen in our life when we are genuinely revived. And revived implies that there is vibe. It implies that there is life. Uh, many might be sitting here and say, I'm not a Christian. You cannot be revived. You have to be vibed. You, you have to be quickened. And made alive in Christ. But we want to, uh, to see. Now we have been in meetings. Where there has been tremendous excitement. And tremendous movement. 
But you don't normally look every week for that kind of a thing in a local church. But when there has been a large buildup of disobedience, and where there has been a buildup where hearts have been hardened, and there has been a rebellion against the Word of God, and the Spirit of God brings the depth of conviction and the change that comes to take place, then you'll see sometimes a burst of that dam. But then you cannot look for that every Sunday. You have to look for the faithful, ongoing, faithful, obedient uh, in your heart and, and the ongoing sanctification process brought by the preaching of the word and your obedience that the spirit of God would implant that word in your heart. I want to see an example of a revival that takes place. And I, and I think the elements in this revival are the elements that would be true of any revival. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they speak unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought before the congregation both men and women, all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning till midday before men and women that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for that purpose. And there were a bunch of people with him. Now let's go down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen. But the lifting up of their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse eight. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. And God gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading, which is expository preaching there. And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. What was happening here? Well, as you know, Israel was the only nation to whom the word of God was given, and they lost it. Hilkiah the priest was in the temple cleaning. There is a discovery of the word of God. The law of God was discovered and and brought it to the king. And Josiah had the reading of the, the book and he realized that we are under the judgment and wrath of God. Because here they had gone without the word of God in their knowing They had been living lives that were completely of the world. And as Ezra begins to expound on this word, Josiah, the king, reads the book. And he literally makes the statement, Great is the wrath of God against us. We have not hearkened to the words of this book. So element number one, we see the preacher involved in revival. What is true of that one who is the preacher? What did Ezra do? He was word-centered. Revival is always word-centered. What did he do? He opened the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord God had commanded to Moses. 
the word of God is that which is central in biblical revival. Uh, You can get a lot of things. You can get experiences. You can work on testimonies. You can work on many different things. Get people going. Uh, My wife and I were watching something recently in this this, uh, guy who claimed to be a Christian and a prophet said that a huge angel stood next to him and gave him instructions of what was going to be coming next. And he said this angel had a huge, huge sledgehammer type thing in his hand. And he was in California. And I told my wife, I said, if that was really a genuine good angel, he'd be bonking some people on the head in California with that. that, That's to me, that's foolishness. You get the word of God that is given. And the word of God, now go back to Ezra chapter 7. Just turn back a few pages, Ezra chapter 7. And you see that this man, Ezra, the preacher, the one who was standing in that pulpit of wood, was word-centered. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. Now look down in verse 10 of Ezra 7. And Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it in Israel, statutes and judgments. So in other words, he was one who sought the word. He walked that word and he taught that word. To me, that's the model teacher. One who has a heart prepared to seek the law of the Lord and then to do that law obedience and then to teach the statutes and judgment. And here was Ezra, who had a heart for the word, who was knowledgeable in the word. He was standing before the people, the preacher, word-centered, prepared, obedient, and teaching that word. He was a steadfast man of God. Now, I'm going to look second element of revival here. The preacher is word-centered. Now, let's look at the preaching itself. What did that proclamation do? As he read the word, now keep in mind, they were standing, no air condition, no padded seats. And he read the word from morning until midday before the men and the women and all that could understand. And all the years of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. So these people were standing outside from morning till midday. What if you went to church next Sunday? And the pastor said on the Sunday previous, said, would like all of our folks to be here by 8 o'clock next Sunday. I have a rather long text. Then he started reading at 8 o'clock, and he was still reading at noon. You'd be. Now, some are more subtle. They glance at their, well, now that you have phones, you can glance at your phones. I was preaching in one church. In fact, I was telling Brother Savinsky last night, the boy pastoring and I said I was uh, preaching and this lady back in the back was sticking her arm way out and doing this like that and I thought what in the world so I, I, I told Dr. Zavinsky's son last night I said I preached just like your dad that night 17 minutes and I said I hung it up fast and uh pastor said boy that was brief tonight I said that woman was driving me crazy 
He said, I should have warned you. She means nothing by that. She just got out of a mental hospital and she means nothing by that. Well, I said, she almost put me in when I'm insecure as it is. <laughs> and, uh, but she was not very subtle. Like, at least you have enough sense to glance and then think your evil thoughts. But, uh, but here they were from morning till midday standing. Now, what did this reading of the word, the preaching implied by, actually applied by the Holy Spirit to their hearts, it number one brought conviction. All the people answered, amen, amen. That's right. With the lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads. Worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. When they realized this word was read and they realized what was being exposed in their hearts as that word was being read, the same thing happened to them as happened to Josiah. We are under the wrath of God and conviction was very, very deep. What is the last time you remember being under deep conviction? Think back. What message? And the Spirit of God took that truth and drove that truth. And you could not forbear. You had to get up and move and go and get alone with God and make that right. When is the last time that happened in your life? You say, well, Brother Les, what if you never sin? Don't ask me how to react to that. Think about that. Now, maybe it's like for me, the most convicting time in my life is personal Bible reading. And as I read, the Spirit of God will point, that's you. And I have two options, argue or agree. And if you argue, you're not going to win that argument. Because you might define sin differently than God's Holy Spirit does as he is working in your heart. How have you done that? I remember we were in a meeting several years ago, Vernon Bruin, myself, and Tom Thompson. We had the Life Action Team and started a meeting in Covington, Kentucky. And uh, we started with a prayer meeting in the pastor's office. And what I, one thing I liked that was done is six months early, a representative would go in and set the church to praying. So there would be six months bathed in prayer for that meeting before the meeting started. And they would get cottage prayer meetings, prayer meetings in homes, prayer meetings after church and so on. So they would pray for six months leading up to that meeting. And, uh, and then we were praying in the pastor's office. And I've, I've never been in a prayer meeting like that when it was just the office staff or the, the church staff. And, and the presence of the Lord was so obvious to us. Nothing weird. No one could pray. It was just silence. We were all on our knees in, in silence. And finally, one began to, to pray and after our prayer time, one of the staff members said, I'm not, uh, to be honest, I'm going to be honest, I'm not into revival. I think there's too much danger of emotion. 
He said, but I do have a prayer request. He said, our daughter ran off with the Hells Angels motorcycle guy. And if we're making a target list this week, we called it impossibility list. Make an impossibility list. I would like to put that on the impossibility because if, if they ever entered this church, it would be a miracle, much less get saved. The guy gets saved. So we, we set to praying on that, and then we had prayer meetings after the services at night. And I, I was praying with an attorney, a guy owned a law firm in that uh, Covington, Cincinnati area. And uh, he and I were praying, and I think it was probably well after midnight, because many groups just stayed and prayed, and way into the night would stay and pray. Oftentimes we'd have all night prayer meetings in some of these meetings. And uh, praying with him one night, and he said, uh, God has torn me up this week. He said, my pride has been a major hindrance in this church. He said, I came to this church 15 years ago, arrogant. He said, I came here not caring who thought what. He said, I had a hobby that was a great offense to many people in this church. He said, I could have cared less, but then I was put on the board. He said, I knew that was not popular. And he said, I could have cared less. He said, but this week, God has smitten me, my pride. I need to ask this church body's forgiveness. I said, well, tomorrow night, before I preach, why don't you just stand up at the mic and, and say what you just shared with me? So... We started on that Thursday night. This man, this attorney, well-known, very, very distinguished man. He said, I have been deeply convicted this week. The Spirit of God has revealed to me that I have been extremely proud. I have been an offense to many of you. And I am asking your forgiveness. And I said, I was standing next to him at the mic. I said, well, the man has asked forgiveness. What do we do? What do we say? You are forgiven. I said, no, I want our heads bowed. Our brother's going off to the prayer meeting. And I said, I want our heads bowed. And I said, and a large crowd in that church that night, I said, how many of you know what this man is talking about? And probably... Half to three quarters of the hands were raised. I said, how many of you whose hands were raised were affected by what this man was saying? And half of those hands were raised. And I said, well, he's gone to the prayer room. He's dealt with that with God. Maybe you need to go now to deal with him about the attitude you had with him. And there was a lineup coming out of the aisles, lineup out the back of the auditorium into the prayer room, and one by one, people were going. Then a man came up to me, and he said, God has smitten me. He said, I blew my car up to make it look like an accident. I hated that car. And he said, I've been so convicted this week about that. He said, I made it look like it was an accident, but I blew the thing up because I hated that car. I wanted insurance money. I said, go to that insurance company. Tell them what happened. 
I said, how badly do you want this right? How badly do you want a conscience clear with God? He said, I don't care what it takes. He came back the next night. He said, the company is no longer in business. I said, find out who bought them. Came back the next night. He said, I found out who bought the company and they were very happy to receive my payment. I said, was it worth it? He said, absolutely, to get that off my conscience. And it, we ended up in that church. I'm not going to go into all the details and stories, but it was an evident work of the depth of conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. And as we were in that scenario, we stayed past. We normally were Sunday through Sunday through Wednesday. We stayed that extra through the second week. We stayed through the third week. And we, we stayed through the fourth week. We stayed four weeks in that church, and that was not the kind of a willy-nilly church either. The church that, that was pastored by a phenomenal Bible teacher years ago. And Dr. Galen Call was pastoring at that time, and he's still ministering somewhere in Minnesota. And, uh, and the deacons came and said, we went to the fire department because people were coming to church and they were bringing things and piling them on the platform. None of this was ever preached about. But they were bringing things that were in their homes that were dishonoring to God, piling them on the platform. Back in the day of Billy Carter posters. Many of you don't even remember the days of Billy Beer. And uh, the Deacons went to the fire department and said, we want to have a, an idol burning. And they set barrels up on the parking lot. The fire department was there. They had barrels, and there were hundreds of people on the parking lot, and they're singing victory in Jesus. And the blazes were going. These things were being burned up. We preached the fourth week to the lost. But for those last two weeks, we are having prayer meetings, turning names in of lost people, hundreds of names of lost people. And we are praying groups of eight or 10 for these names by name. And the 31st night of that meeting, pastor baptized 125 new converts. And it was these and two of those one wanted to be, have his wife in his arms when he was baptized so they could be baptized together. And it was that staff member's daughter and her husband who got saved on the second Sunday night of the meeting. They came forward and got saved. And this staff member who was so afraid of emotion in revival, when they came up out of that water, goes, Woo! Well, we don't want revival. None of that. You know, once in a while we can throw our hands up, right? Well, I do at ball games. I never did. I was a Lions fan, Detroit Lions fan. And uh, I would like this. I did one time. They got to the 50-yard line. I put one arm up. And then... But the point is... The word brought conviction. What did the word do? It exposed where their disobedience was. You know what they did? They exchanged what they were doing to love for God. And it also brought confession. Look in chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the 20 and fourth day of the ninth 
month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and an earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And by the way, it's interesting to see repentance is also a gift from God. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of God one fourth part of a day and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Twenty-four days later, what are they doing? Reading a fourth part of a day and then when they read, they would confess a fourth part of a day what they had walked, where they had walked in disobedience. They agreed with God. This was sin in our lives and we are now confessing that sin. Have you ever seen that in your heart? When the Spirit of God convicts and you confess? I was preaching at a school camp many, many years ago, and I got up to preach, and and there was a visiting evangelist there, and I thought I had a pretty neat outline that night, and I wanted him to hear that as well as the kids. But I had no freedom to speak. I stood up and I said, I want us to bow our heads because I was speaking to a Christian school group. These kids were doing time in a Christian school. And, uh, and so I said, I analyzed today approximately how many sermons you have heard in the last 12 months. I said, it's probably into the 200s. I said, with your heads bowed there, think, at what message did the Spirit of God convict? And I knew I had to confess, but I did not. I have not yet obeyed the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I said, if you know what God has done, and it might be in the last, well, maybe the last week, but you know what it is. then you determine right now you're going to obey God with that thing. Because for me to pile another message on top, it's just going to be another message on the wagon and there's just going to be another load of of burden that you have where there has been disobedience instead of confession. And I said, you know what you need to do before I preach. I want you to go ahead and do it. Young people started moving. Some cheerleaders went to others, confessing jealousy. A line before cell phones, a line went to the camp office, lined up at the camp office phone, calling home, asking forgiveness of parents. Students going to teachers, asking forgiveness for cheating. There was a corporal's guard left. And I said, let's gather up to the front here to pray. And I'll tell you what, it started a work of God in the hearts of those young people. And that went back to that school. Instant obedience to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the preaching brought commitment. When they realized what they had not done, look what it says here in chapter 8 and verse 14. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths. The Feast of Tabernacles. So what they did, they began realizing where they had gone awry. They had not done the Feast of God. And these feasts were focused where they could get a new focus. Great fellowship and great feasting. 
Three times a year, the men were required to do that. They had not done any of that. So what it did is it brought a commitment. And you see that what happened is they determined, this is a step I now have to make. Well, if we could get in our local churches and when the pastor gets up to preach and the Spirit of God works and there's conviction of the Spirit in your heart and we sit there with a stubbornness in our heart, I am not going to obey, I am not going to admit. There is a hardness that comes in and then you begin to just gloss over that thing. What you need to do is make a commitment. This is what is going to happen in my heart. How many times, if you're here unsaved, how many times have you been convicted in a message regarding your lack lack of salvation? You've lifted your hand if an invitation was given that you were. I went through that. I'd lift my hand about that high. But yet I'd be crying within my heart, oh, if I only did know. Because I had made a, was not raised in a Christian home, I was... I'd made a profession when I was young, went forward with a big group and uh, an evangelist. In fact, my brother Earl, who got saved, and Jim Hill uh, had invited. But no one ever opened a Bible to show me. There were so many went forward. A converted gangster had preached that night. And uh, but I was too shy to tell anybody. Uh, So I went through the motions. And yet when an invitation was given, I knew that sick prompting. But then the pride would, would get prominent. Until finally one, one time I thought, no, I, I need to deal with this. To swallow that pride, to deal with the fact that I've never repented of sin. And it had to be a matter taken care of. Remember down in New Testament Baptist Church in Hialeah, Florida, Dr. Al Janney's church, second Sunday night of our meeting. We were getting ready to close after we had sung a few stanzas of Have Thine Own Way, and we were getting ready to close in prayer, and I was standing up here, and a youth pastor of the church stood up in the balcony and said, Don't stop the service! And he came out of the balcony down the steps. Dr. Janney was sitting on the front row down here. He came through. He came to the mic. He said, I stand before you lost. He said, I have lied. Because I was good with young people. I was, though I have my own business in the church, I, I, I was offered the opportunity to be, work with the young people, be a youth pastor. So when I, I was asked to give my testimony, he said, I lied. But really what I did, prayed a prayer to get a guy off my back. And he said, I then he said, I met this girl in the church and proposed. And as we were going through marriage prep, I, I was asked to give my testimony again. And he said, I told the same story. But he said, I knew I was not saved. None of the fruit was evident in his life that he knew. The externals were there. And he said, I am leaving this mic and I'm going to go and take care of that matter. I wonder how many in this student body have fought and fought and fought and finally this week you say that is one thing I am going to have to deal with. 
is I cannot think of a greater horror than the great white throne judgment and be told after you've argued, but I've done many wonderful works. I went to the academy. I went to this and I went to that and I was in this church and depart from me. I never knew you. Don't play games with that. Be willing to humble yourself. You are surrounded with people who love you. Your roommates love you. Your classmates love you. And most of all, God loves you. And the Spirit of God is wooing you to come to him. Well, I need to move on to a closure. What about the people? The people first were hungry. They were so desperate to hear the word. They stood outside for hours. And then read outside for hours. And confessed for hours. They were hungry. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. Secondly, they were humble. They bowed themselves with their faces to the ground. Oftentimes it was said water would be pouring out and wherever that water ran is where they would put their faces in humility, finding the lowest place they could find to put their face to indicate the dire need that they had within their own hearts. And they were honest. They acknowledged this is the need. Thursday night I'm going to talk about personal revival. Getting to the I am level in my life. It's not what I know. It's not what I do. It's what am I? Pharisees were great at knowing and doing. They weren't. Jesus had them read thoroughly. They were honest. One thing we begged this week as a result of the hundreds and hundreds of hours bathing this conference in prayer that you would not resist the work that you would get on and say that, that I, I admit that's what I am. And then they were holy. They separated themselves from the people of the land. They had intermingled. There was no longer any dif- distinction between the people of God, the people of the world. And you look in chapter 9, there in verse 2, and Israel separated themselves from the strangers stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. They were again a distinct people. And you have to come to acknowledge in your life, how am I? Have you owned your faith personally? I think Joash, the story of Joash is one of the tragic stories of the Old Testament as I close. Joash was the only survivor when Athaliah was having that bipolar ordeal. Killed all the grandkids. But yet, Jehoiada, the priest, his wife took Joash and hid him for six years and then he became the king. And it was great movement as long as Jehoiada lived the priest. But as soon as Jehoiada died, it was evident that Joash never owned his faith. It was Jehoiada 
who kept things running. Joash was revealed that he had a heart for the world and he had a heart for that which was wicked. And he was found out when he was no longer protected by Jehoiada. And I think when you look in your own heart, I'm not going to give an invitation this morning. When you look in your own heart, you might have to go and get alone with God after this service is dismissed. You might have to grab your roommate or a counselor or a faculty member. Or you might say, there are things I've been hiding in my heart. I know they're not honoring to God. I know I've been convicted, but I've never confessed. So therefore, there's no change. There's no exchange that takes place. Let's bow our heads together as we close. Father, I I pray that you will open up the eyes of our understanding and our hearts that we would see and know your truth. Oh, God, do a work in the student body. God, may there be a stirring So many hours of praying, and I know you honor those who seek. God, we pray for those who perhaps are really battling with the matter of salvation. People who know them best know that there's no spiritual life there. But yet, God, would you lovingly continue to woo the spirit of God's conviction draw them to yourself. Then for this school that it would continue to be a monument for truth, for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.